Hey friends, I just want to invite you to consider joining the Theology Nara Patreon community. This is a group of followers who believe in the ministry and work of Theology Nara and want to support it financially. And honestly, I've been so impacted by the people who have chosen to support this podcast. Um, every month they send in a bunch of questions. A lot of them are really personal and I get to spend time responding to them in a private podcast. And we, you know, we'll message each other throughout the month and post responses to each other's questions. I'm actually going to start something new this fall, a monthly live Zoom chat with some of the members. And I'm super looking forward to actually seeing more of their faces every month. And there's other perks to come up, like a free virtual pass to the Theology Nara Exiles in Babylon conference every year. But honestly, I don't want to make it sound transactional. Every single single Patreon member that I've talked to says the same thing. We like all the perks. Uh, we're thankful for them, but we're just more thankful to support the ministry of theology in the raw, and we're glad to do so. So if this is you, if you've been impacted by Theology in the Raw, you can join the Theology in the Raw community for a minimum of five bucks a month by going to patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw. That's patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw. The link is in the show notes. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. My guest today is my friend and fellow Dodger fan, Karen Gonzalez. Karen is a writer, speaker, and immigrant advocate uh, who immigrated from Guatemala as a child. She attended Fuller Seminary, where she got a degree in theology and missiology. She's also worked in the nonprofit sector for over 13 years. Uh, her first book is The God Who Sees, Immigrants, the Bible, and the Journey to Belong. Her second book that just came out is called Beyond Welcome, Centering Immigrants in Our Christian Response to Immigration. Had a wonderful conversation, as I always do with Karen. Uh, we do begin with a bit of banter about the Los Angeles Dodgers, who are going to take the series next year. Um, and then we dig into a, a kind of wide-ranging conversation about all things related to immigration and how Christians should think through this important conversation. So please welcome back to the show, the one and only Karen Gonzalez. Karen, how are you doing over there in Baltimore this morning? Good. A tiny bit chilly, but yeah. doing well. I Boise is getting really cold. We got a blanket of snow on the ground right now. Um, so, but yeah, East Coast cold is different than West Coast cold, I think. You guys got that cold that just rips right through your clothes. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's not humid cold. Yeah, yeah. We got a dry cold out here. Um, I want to jump into your book, Beyond Welcome, that just came out last month. But first of all, I really... I, I've been looking for this conversation for several reasons, one of which is I really need to debrief about our Dodgers in October. Have you recovered yet? Because that was not okay. What happened? <laughs> you know, every year during the playoffs, I buy like the full cable access so that I can watch the playoffs. And I couldn't believe that after one round, yeah. we were out. See, this is why I really think, I told you this last time, I love Freddie Freeman. He's a good guy. But we really needed to invest in pitching because we had yeah. we had this great lineup of really good hitters, but we didn't have any pitching, especially once Bueller went out on yeah. the IL and May is out. And May isn't reliable anyway right now just because he's so young and doesn't have good control. And Kershaw isn't the same Kershaw we used to know. You know, he's older. Um mm. He's still got his off-speed stuff and his curveball, but he's just not the ace we used to be able to rely on. So uh, I think without pitching, we had Urias, right? He was, yeah, he was great. 
He was uh, like, uh, I'm surprised he didn't get nominated for Cy Young because he was so good this year. But yeah, we just need pitching. And I hope they're investing in pitching in the offseason. Not Verlander. We don't need him. He's he's 39. Or, yeah. I mean, he had a great, obviously, you know, Cy Young. But you're kind of rolling the dice yeah. with a guy that's that old. I mean, I don't know. And he's not going to want a one-year deal, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I yeah, I was I was actually in Europe uh, while it was while the game was going on. So I would um, I was kind of waking up at like three a.m. to kind of catch a little bit here and there. And I was like, all right, first get the first win out of the way. I'm like, all right, you know, let's just get let's get past these Padres. We beat them what fourteen out of eighteen times or something. And then they lost. I'm like, all right, this will be interesting. Lost again. I'm like, all right. And then I literally woke up at three in the morning during that last game, and it was right when they scored a couple runs. I'm like, all right. Let's get, let's get to the final game. This is getting a little stressful, you know, and then I woke up and I fell asleep. And I woke up and they, they were gone. I was like, you got to be kidding me. This is not this is not OK. I think you're right. The pitching. I don't know if it's every team because I don't follow other teams that closely, but it seems like we just go through a lot of injuries. Like we always have yeah. six or seven capable starters, but then rarely do we have all of them firing on all cylinders, you know, they're going to see, do you, do you think the Dodgers pitching is particularly prone to injury or, or is that kind of common for most teams? If you know, no, I think it's common. And you know, ever since they had the expansion teams, like the Rockies, the Rays, all those teams, there seems to be not enough pitching Yeah, for everyone and everybody's struggling for pitching ever since. And like, we just got really unlucky this year. And also the Padres got hot the right time at the end. And we were cooling off by then, yeah. you know, even though we won 111 games. I know, yeah. By then, we were, you know, on a on a downtrend and they were on an uptrend. So they, we just got unlucky with that timing. So they had momentum going we, in. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they had the momentum. And, you know, they're like a young, hot team. We have a lot of veterans on our team. We have a good farm team. Yeah. Dodgers seems to – they do a good job of developing young players. So, but you know, Cody Bellinger yeah. isn't hitting. I mean, since his first season, his rookie season, he really hasn't been the same, you know, in terms of production. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm worried that we're not going to focus on pitching this off season, and now we've lost some good hitters because I, know. I don't know why gone, we're not trying Turner to keep. I, wait, is Trey Turner gone for sure, or they just didn't? Trey re- Turner, pro- yeah, most likely they're going to try to replace him. And Justin Turner's gone, who has been a reliable veteran, you know, a good clubhouse presence. But I mean, I understand why they didn't sign him. He's older and he wants a multi-year deal and can't give that to a guy who's 37 or, you know. I I don't know why we're not trying to keep Trey Turner. He's the best one of, if not the best hitting shortstops, at least in the, in the, in the majors. Why why are we not throwing a ton of money at him to keep him? I mean, he's one of our best players. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, it's hard to figure out what moves they're going to make. They already non-tendered um, Cody. Yeah, that was sad. I think <laughs> I think on Turner, they're still maybe deciding or wavering. I think a lot of teams are going to want him and are going to oh, yeah. want to pay. He's good. He's I mean the speed he hits for average hits for power. I don't. I, he's good defense. Maybe not the best defense, but he's good. I mean, 
I mean, he's got all the tools. Like he, yeah, I don't. I would go after him like we did Freddie last year, unless there's a money issue or something, or unless they have their eyes on somebody. But who? Are they, who? Do they, what other shortstop would you pick over him? Like Correa or something? I mean, I don't want Correa on the Dodgers. <laughs> and they don't have money problems, you know. They're not the <laughs> Mariners or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, every off season, at least last few years, the Dodgers have always done well. They've always picked up some really great people, uh, but they're they've lost. I mean, Cody, Cody's my favorite player. I'll always be a Bellinger fan, but man, the last three years have just even, you know what it was too. It was really the last half of even his MVP season in 2019. I don't know if you remember, but I mean, the first half he was just, I mean, smoke the second half. He, he was been dropping. He still did good, but you know, but ever since then, the second half of his MVP season, he has just not been the same. So I, it's super sad to leave. I, I I feel like seeing him in another uniform is gonna be like seeing my wife with another man or something. You know, <laughs> she doesn't like what I say, <laughs> but but he just has not been the guy. You know, it's but anyway. Yeah, I think they're gonna they'll pull out somebody this year. I'm sure. Yeah. <sighs> All right. Well, should we talk about <laughs> some more kingdom? Sure. Stuff? Let's talk about theology. <laughs> <laughs> so your new book, Beyond Welcome: uh, Centering Immigrants in Our Christian Response to Immigration. I love talking to you about immigration. I love your. I, I just. I mean, obviously, you bring in your your personal experience with a, a great knowledge of the scriptures, which there's just there's so much there in the Bible. I mean, it's got to be like. When you talk about immigration from a biblical perspective, it's got to be like fish, shooting fish in a barrel. There's just such a rich biblical theme that's so hard to miss, and yet a lot of people miss it. Why? Why? Why do you think that is? Do, do you have any? I mean, I'm sure it's been frustrating for you to some extent. I, I'd imagine, but why do people just not see this huge, rich theme in Scripture? It's because they're really not taught to see it. You know, most of us rely on our spiritual teachers, our pastors, our Bible study leaders, mentors, and they don't really focus on those passages. Uh, The majority of them are in the Old Testament, so in the Hebrew Bible, which we tend not to preach out of as much. And then we have that rich passage in Matthew 25, which gets translated as stranger instead of immigrant. And for us, that has very different connotations, right? A stranger versus an immigrant. I was a stranger and you welcome me. And I think also there's a, you know, in the church, there's an overemphasis on reading Jesus through Paul instead of reading Jesus' words. And so what you have then, which which I think is ridiculous, I think it would really upset Paul if he were around. <laughs> but <laughs> for example, people take the Romans 13 passage about obeying uh, the law and honoring governing authorities, and they take that as Paul saying oh, whatever the law of the land is, we should be agreeing with it. When we know Paul was executed by the empire. Right. When the empire came up against his faith, he didn't choose the empire. <laughs> and defending <laughs> the empire's laws and guidelines, he defended his faith. And so I think there is, it's not being taught largely. Some of that is not pastor's fault. Some of it is the way we've structured our churches <laughs> yeah. to where, you know, churches, pastors are paid by the congregation. And we all know of situations where an angry, wealthy member of the congregation mm-hmm. gets upset, right? Yeah. And threatens to leave and take their funds with them. I think some of that, which is why mainline pastors or priests are able to speak about it way more openly. They're not relying on the same, you know, source of income. Because believe it or not, I've had churches invite me to speak 
on immigration and it's like they don't they invite me to preach on it but the pastor won't do it and the pastor sometimes actually says you can say things and i can't because you're a guest you know huh. Interesting. <laughs> so there's yeah. a way in which they can get the message out without threatening their own position in the church you know and uh, upsetting certain people in the church so yeah i think it's complicated but I think a lot of it does boil down to a lot of us are not reading the Bible from the perspective of people on the margins. We don't read the story of Ruth as a story of migration. Hmm. We don't look at Abraham and look at the fact that the first time we encounter him, God asks him to migrate. Yeah. So there's a lot of movement of people in the Bible. We're not taught to see it. Yeah. Or, or, you know, with Abraham, you know, we do read it as a story of faith. He left his homeland, whatever. But we don't, at least in my experience, you know, I've, I I can recall Sunday, you know, Sunday school lessons and, you know, the flannel graph <laughs> and Abraham moving along and we sing about it and, and sermons on it and stuff. But it, we we simply focus on kind of his his faith and trusting God and leaving. But we don't even, it's like we talk about him leaving his homeland, but we don't frame it through the lens of being a migrant. You know, like, um, or even making the application to today, like we just kind of just avoid that. I, I wonder if that's part of the, you know, the translation thing in Matthew twenty five. That's interesting. I, I, yeah, I think that could be a big reason why. And even the Old Testament translates migrant or immigrant as stranger often, right, or alien or something. Um, which I guess is fine if we know what that means. Well, no, it's 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 yeah. I, I do think we'd probably need a better translation of that. What would be the translation? Would you say just instead of the word translated stranger, would you say migrant? Do you think that's I would the say best? immigrant? That's immigrant? what you okay. see. Um, the Common English Bible. Okay. Translates it as immigrant, and I think I love using that version when I preach because it uses the words that we use. Mm -hmm. I think the RSV uses uh, foreigner as well, which is still better than stranger. Which to us is just any random person we don't know, know. right? <laughs> well, where did that come from, stranger? I, I never thought about that. Just because I, I've, I've been used to when I see stranger, I in my mind I see immigrant. So it's not. I've never really thought of it as a bad translation. But yeah, if somebody is not doesn't doesn't interpret it that way, then yeah, that's stranger. Like don't talk to str stranger. Can almost have a bad connotation. Like right, like stranger, don't take candy danger, from strangers. Right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it is. I think it's it's unfortunate because then people don't like over and over again we have God, you know, when he when God brings the Israelites um or the Hebrews out of Egypt, over and over again God tells them, you know, you must love the stranger as yourself for you were strangers in Egypt, right? But he's telling them that you were immigrants in Egypt and you were treated poorly. So now don't do that. Right, right. You know, yeah. Do uh, do well for immigrants, and and you see it illustrated beautifully in the book of Ruth, where she is welcomed into this community as family, not as a foreign person, uh, but as family. And you see the blessing for both sides, for her and for Naomi. Right at the very end, the women tell Naomi. Your daughter-in-law who loves you is better than seven sons. Mm. I mean, what does it take wow. in a patriarchal society to say that a foreign woman is better than seven sons? Yeah, that's wild. Yeah, it's a really powerful thing, but we, we always focus on Boaz as the kinsman redeemer instead of the fact that the story is really about Naomi. Naomi is the only one who changes in that text. 
And Ruth and Boaz are both important characters in the story, but really the focus should be on Naomi and her experience. But we don't we don't learn it that way. Some of it is we don't have women teaching these stories. I think we also see it in on the story of Rahab. You have this foreign prostitute, a foreign prostitute. She is treated like an outcast in her own community of Canaanites, right? She lives on the wall and she's not someone who's fully part of the community, which maybe is why it makes it so easy for her to betray them, right? Mm -hmm. Against, uh, to turn on them and support the Hebrews. But when they conquer Jericho and they settle the land, she doesn't get marginalized in the community. Like, okay, we're keeping our promise to you. So we're going to put you in some little corner here. No, she's welcomed as family into the community. And she becomes part of the lineage of Jesus. She marries, she lives with honor, and her children end up in the lineage of Jesus, which is really amazing, right? Right. So I think there's something in those stories that we're missing. We're only learning the perspective of what the men were doing or perhaps focusing on God's actions within it, which is also good. Also things that are part of the text, but we're not focusing on the fact that God could have done this any way God wanted to, and God chose Mm -hmm. to include this foreign sex worker into the community, Mm -hmm. right? So yeah, I think there's a lot that we're missing when we're using only one lens to read the Bible. And then I think to some extent, it also absolves us of responsibility, right? If we're not reading it through the lens of immigration, when it's such a such a polarizing topic since the Trump administration. Yeah. Well, now, so you you went there. Um, would you did you see a major turning point in in people's thinking, or just even the, even the cultural climate in since say twenty sixteen? Um, have you noticed that? Oh, definitely. Well, Trump began scapegoating immigrants and refugees. Refugees had always be, been considered the quote unquote you know good immigrants mm-hmm. because they come here. They're they're um, suffering, right? Mm-hmm. Trauma, war. And so they're brought here and they come in legally. And this is a big sticking point for a lot of people is that people are not legally in the United States. So people were always fully supportive of refugees until Trump. Trump really turned against them and they, even they weren't considered uh, quote unquote good mm-hmm. enough to be here. You know, I understand why so many people held on to Trump's words when you're economically imperiled, when you see jobs disappearing and moving overseas, you want someone to blame for this changing world, right? Trump gave them someone to blame. Trump said, look, it's these people's fault that you're imperiled. And people grabbed onto that. But, you know, it isn't uh, immigrants' fault. NAFTA, you know, the North American Free Trade Agreement that took tons of jobs away that were working class jobs. That's not immigrants' fault. You know, this was something decided at a leadership level, and it was really bad for Latin America, too. It was not good for Mexico at all. Tons of farmers who had had these corn, you know, farms for generations lost them because they couldn't compete with the price of corn from the United States that was coming from the Midwest. Hmm. 
So, and then we had all these factories. That wasn't great either, because guess what? With that came a lot of crime. In Juarez, there's still so many dead women and girls that are, you know, it wasn't good for Mexico either. And it definitely wasn't good for the U.S. When my family migrated to the U.S. in the 80s, most of the adults lived in Rhode Island. That's where we moved originally. And they all worked in these like costume jewelry factories. So they had these nine to five kind of jobs working in these factories, making these jewelry things, you know, for Kmart or whoever. And it was really a good job for them because it was eight to five. And then you came home, you have dinner with your children after school. All those jobs have disappeared in Rhode Island, all of them. So now immigrants are working service jobs, which means they're working weekends, they're working nights. They're not able to go to parent conferences at school, and they're not able to be there for their kids in the evenings like they used to be. So it was really a harmful thing all around. It wasn't really free for everyone. It was only really good for corporate America and not really good for anyone else. And so I get it. I get why people want someone to blame, but the blame is on the wrong group. It's not were at fault. You know, it's funny is if if we assume, and I think it's probably an accurate assumption that it's primarily conservatives, whether religious or not, um, in America that are maybe most resistant to Im- immigration as a whole. It's interesting because a lot of people coming into to America from other countries are actually bringing fairly conservative values with them. You know, like <laughs> isn't that true? I mean, isn't it kind of a little odd? It's like, well, wait a minute. Like, if you want to return to kind of the good old days or whatever, um, some a lot of a lot of people from different countries kind of have those kind of values that they're bringing with them. Is that is that true, or why do why, why don't people kind of it's notice that, true. or do they just not connect those dots, or whatever? I think people don't connect those dots and they don't realize too, you know, immigrants are more likely to attend church or worship service. They're more likely to stay married, least likely Mm -hmm. to get divorced. Family. There's all kinds of ways in which, yeah, they're very, very conservative, very family focused. It lines up really well with conservative values. It's just the language and culture barrier and the racial component, I think in some cases, right? Because we saw, for example, a lot of goodwill toward Ukrainian refugees. And we saw some goodwill initially toward Afghan refugees when, you know, Kabul fell. But now we can't pass the Afghan Adjustment Act, you know. And now even the goodwill toward Ukrainians, it's not that it's disappeared, but we just don't hear about it as much because the war has been going on for so long now that it's no longer a novelty for people. They moved on in the news cycle. Yeah, it's a really interesting phenomenon, the way that that works, but people don't don't connect those dots very often. And to be honest, it's not just conservative Christians. I speak to a fair amount of mainline churches. I think that conservative Christians get scapegoated a lot in this conversation. I find that mainline Christians, now the pastors are very different. Pastors are very tend to be very progressive and have really strong social teaching in their denominations around immigration. The congregants are no different than those that I find in conservative evangelical churches. They are they ask the same questions mm. and I don't really know a difference. Okay. So yeah, that bothers me a little bit when people say that it's just conservative Christians. I'm like, no, it's 
It's really a lot of Christians. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. In my anecdotal experience, which is only anecdotal, I mean, I live in a very conservative, very white area, Boise, Idaho, which is one of the main was, and, and it still is, I guess, relatively speaking, uh, refugee resettlement communities. And um, and we're, we're pretty involved with, with um, the refugee community and for the most part, Christians here, cons- very conservative Christians, are very pro-refugee. They they open up their churches. They have a lot of conservative conservative churches give like free space to re- refugees gathering there. One church I know has like three or four different churches that gather there. Yeah, I know several friends of mine who are de- just personally just very very invested in helping resettlement and housing. And um, so I but I, I know that's probably not. The norm. I don't know why it's like that. Maybe because we just have had a rich history of um, refugees being here. But and I, and I'm sure there's antagonism. I'm sure that there's exceptions to that. But I would say again, anecdotally, the majority of conservative Christians here are very welcoming. Um, I wonder, do, is there a difference? So you you mentioned ref. So there's like you know your standard immigrant that goes through all the right processes or whatever. Then you have refugees, and then you have undocumented immigrants. I, um, do you find some maybe Christians resistant to all of the above <laughs> or is it primarily kind of um, maybe refugees from Muslim dominated countries, you know, certain kinds of refugees or, and obviously I think undocumented immigrants, most people are going to have a problem with that. Yes. So yeah, definitely people are resistant to Muslim refugees and they think all refugees are Muslim where over half of refugees And we, the United States takes in the most refugees from persecuted Christian communities. Oh, wow. So the church in Egypt, the church in Iraq, the church in Palestine, all these places. And so 55% are already Christians. But yes, it's um, Muslim refugees and then undocumented immigrants. Here's the interesting thing. We, I, I point this out to people. They say they don't want undocumented immigrants. And yet there's very little punishment for the people who hire them right. when they're here. Once they're, you know, if they're discovered to be employing undocumented immigrants, there's no real punishment. It's a slap on the wrist if it's discovered at all. And the majority of our food, like, you know, Thanksgiving food. I don't know if you saw this, but we just had Thanksgiving, right? There was this meme going around that said, you know, thank Jesus for your food because he's the one <laughs> harvesting it. 70 to 75% of our food is harvested by people who are undocumented because our citizens do not want to do those jobs. And there are states who have tried, like the state of Washington tried to only hire people who are not undocumented, had the legal right to work in the U.S. Apples literally rotted on the trees because they couldn't find enough workers. They were even offering like a $15 an hour rate Oh wow! Still could not get enough American workers, uh, so that's part of it. Also, like the you know slaughterhouses, uh, poultry farms, dairy farms, all those places. It's immigrants who do that labor as well. You know, I live in Baltimore. We have all these uh, Johns Hopkins hospitals, and um, it's a it's a big mecca for people who are looking for sort of cutting edge medical treatment. But there's a real reality to the medical world in that in Baltimore, there are all these industrial laundries because you need the linens from those hospitals cleaned. And it's all immigrants 
who work in these mm. places. And it's really terrible. It's freezing cold in the winter. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly hot in the summer because of the dryers. And it's immigrants doing this work nobody else mm-hmm. wants to do. Because think about hospital linens and the things that are oh, man. really, really bad. So, and you know, the thing is, Preston, America has always been this way. Always have immigrants become the backbone of the working class, the Irish when they came. If you go to New York, they'll give you a tour of the Brooklyn Bridge and they'll tell you how many Irish immigrants died mm-hmm. in the building of this thing because it's before OSHA, before there were safety regulations. So it's always been this way, but all of a sudden people have really turned. It's not that Irish immigrants were treated um, well because they weren't when they arrived either. But eventually they were they became part of the landscape of the country. And now people very proudly speak about their Irish heritage, yeah. right? Um, and that doesn't seem to be happening with a lot of, you know, Latin immigrants. And so and some of it is that racially we really can't blend in the same way, even if we've been here for generations. Yeah. Yeah, so my family, I've I have uh, Armenian roots, and it was the same thing. They a lot of Armenians came over to Central California during after the genocide hundred years ago, and um, uh, they 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 started as farmers and workers and everything, and and they ended up now. I mean, now several gen- generations later, owning all the farms, and they're known for being very wealthy now. <laughs> but that you know they started very much on on the ground like that. Is that good for the image? Like, are they happy? And it's such a broad statement, a broad group of people. But like, um, is it still like, oh, this is still better than what I left and I could still make more money, even though it's not a lot by American standards, it's still more by the standards that I left? Or do they feel disappointed when they migrate here or whatever and they they find themselves in, you know, kind of more uh, menial jobs or whatever, jobs that other people don't want? Is is there a, a general perspective there or...? It's hard to say general, but people come here to work and they're able to find work. Right. And they're able to find work that can support their families back home, they can sustain themselves, and they can build mm-hmm. a life here. So they are able, people are happy to be able to find work because that's what people are coming for. Immigrants are like 13% of the population, but they make up 16% of the workforce. Oh, wow. Okay. So everybody who comes here comes here to work yeah yeah and so which again is, is why, again is something conservatives yeah. should celebrate it's like priding ourselves on you know hard work good work ethic and everything and it's like who who works harder than immigrants that come here man yeah and so and and without protections you right. know under threat of deportation if, if they don't have the legal right to be here so it's a little bit confusing i think for a lot of immigrants because on the one hand there's a this is there's this do not enter sign in the borderlands, right? Do not come in here. On the other hand, there's all these help wanted signs. <laughs> of uh, There's all these jobs that are available. Mm-hmm. And frankly, if we, if we deported every single undocumented immigrant, um, it would tremendously hurt the economy, tremendously. And almost all economists agree on that. You can, you can access all these different think tanks, even libertarian think tanks. Uh, the Cato Institute is really supportive of immigration and even undocumented migration because yeah. of the way that it supports the economy. So 
you know, there's a sort of a kind of thinking that people have about, well, they're not documented. They shouldn't be here. Um, and then again, also benefiting from their labor in a lot of ways. Right. And so to me, that's, what's hard. It's like, well, okay, if they weren't here, this is what it would mean for you. And you probably don't want that, (laughs) but you also don't want them to be here. And frankly, even though immigration is good for countries and their economies, Christians, that shouldn't matter. What should matter is, well, what does my faith say about migration? You know, what, what does God say? About yeah, what it what, what it does it, if it did something negative to the economy in America as Christians that should never trump our Christian ethic. Um, but you're saying, and I've I've heard this too, and I just want to verify that the whole idea of their you know immigrants are coming and taking our jobs, especially undocumented ones. You know, are you you're saying that's just factually untrue? That's not it's not yeah. taking it's they're taking jobs nobody here wants to do and it's not actually hurting the economy it's helping the economy is that that's and that's pretty that's not like a partisan t- talking point that's well established that's been proven true over and over again and you can access all these different um immigration think tanks that are nonpartisan yeah. that have done this research over and over again it's also true that our country sends them a very conflicting response because you have the IRS and the Social Security Administration saying that they'll accommodate payments from immigrants who are undocumented. They've gone on the record to say this. And then you have DHS saying, well, no, they don't belong here. <laughs> so which is it? Because last year, immigrants, undocumented immigrants paid about $11 billion in taxes. And the Unda- IRS undocumented like, immigrants. Our money. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So immigrants do pay taxes, whether they're documented or not. Of course, there's always things like state taxes and property taxes that you pay through rent, right, or through buying clothes or whatever. But then there's also most most people work either with a fake Social Security number or they work with something called an, an individual tax identification number. And the IRS will give them this number. And this is what they use to pay taxes. So the IRS knows that only undocumented immigrants request this number. And they provide the numbers so that people can pay their taxes. And so this is what I mean. You so can't they just turn a blind eye to the you can't fact have some that... government agency saying, yes, here, we'll take your money. <laughs> and some saying, well, you don't belong here. <laughs> How do you wrestle with, and I, 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 I appreciate that you pointed out that when we talk about policy and politics, all of this is secondary to the the Christian ethic of, of welcoming the quote, quote stranger or whatever. But um Assuming that, and I think my audience probably gets that. We, you and I get that. We don't need to keep harping on that. But, um, well, like just from a policy, from a policy perspective, from a political perspective, like all countries have borders, right? I mean, you and and they have Paul. I, I can't just waltz into, you know, Bolivia without proper documentation. I would have to sneak in or so. So, um, so you have. I mean, I so to, to have no border policy that doesn't make no no country does that, and you have to have some kind of okay. If you want to be a citizen, here's the channels to get in, and yet you do have, like you said, undocumented my immigrants coming in. Um, a lot of people turn a blind eye. We all know it's actually helpful, so we don't maybe crack down or whatever the way we should. But then should we crack down? Then like. It, it, it's just, it seems like a catch. If I just put my political hat on, it's like, okay, well, where, where do we draw the line? Do we just tear, tear down the board? There's open borders. There's no whatever. It's like, well, no, that's not realistic. So if we do have, you know, uh, processes to get into the country, then 
we should say undocumented immigrants aren't allowed. Like you have to have the proper documentation or how do we wrestle with that? Just from, again, just from a, yeah. from a Christian, I'm like, mm-hmm. tear down the wall. I don't care. Let all the people in, whatever. Like I want to, I want to <laughs> love the world, <laughs> love my neighbor, love my enemy, whatever. And you know, whatever, whatever Babylon does with the policy is kind of like a distant secondary in my mind. But um, I think it's a good question. And the thing is, there's a lot of policy people who've thought through that already. And part of it is we need to provide a lot more work visas to accommodate our labor needs. Okay. Because we have labor needs. We don't have enough American workers for them, particularly in certain jobs, agriculture, for example. And yet we only pro- we don't provide enough visas for this thing. So what that means is that people get jobs undocumented because they don't have a visa. And then they can be exploited really easily by the owner, right, of this industry because they don't have the legal right to, you know, if someone was cheating me out of wages, I'd call the police, I'd call the Department of Labor because I have the legal right to work in the U.S. But if I didn't, who do I go to? Nobody. I'm stuck, right? So it leads to more abuse as well. So we need more work visas uh, to accommodate our needs and to protect our immigrant neighbors as well. So that is one thing that we could do. And in the past, we did do that. We had used to have this program called the Bracero Program, which wasn't perfect, but it would provide work visas so people would come into the U.S., work, and then they'd go home again. Hmm. People are coming here for work. They prefer to live in their own home, you know? But so they, it was this circular sort of, uh, you know, back to their homeland. Then we ended programs like that. And so now we just have undocumented people who stay because if they leave, they won't be able to come mm-hmm. back. Right? Okay. So that's one thing. The other thing is we have a lot of people here, for example, full under DACA. So these were um, people who were brought into the U.S. as children and their parents were undocumented. So they were, too. So they're under this protection that President Obama started called a deferred action for childhood arrivals. And this protection is just basically they're dangling out there because this protection could end at any time. And people in the U.S., like three quarters of Americans support providing them a pathway to citizenship. But our legislators just haven't had the will to pass the DREAM Act. Um, same thing with the Afghan Adjustment Act. Most Americans support it, but our legislators just don't have the will to pass it, to work together um, for that. And so... So we have some legislations out there that could provide people who've been in our country, who've been contributing a pathway to citizenship, but they don't have it. So, so that's another thing is that, you know, there's a, there's something that you hear sometimes called, um, it's called uh, comprehensive immigration reform, the policy, and this is some of what they propose. So they propose providing more work visas. They propose, um, having a secure border, but 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 letting in enough workers, right? So that we can uh, our labor needs can be met. And they support also providing a pathway to citizenship to people who've been here for a long time. Perhaps have them pass a background check, have them prove that they've been paying taxes, and then provide them a pathway. Yeah. Uh, so there are several parts of it that are just very practical and very feasible. Um, nobody 
that I know of who is an immigration advocate is saying, let's erase every border, you know, everywhere. Nobody's saying that, but that's the extreme that people go to. They're like, oh, you must want this. Nobody proposes that because nobody, nobody believes that that would actually work as legislation, (laughs) you know, in uh, Capitol Hill. So what they're proposing is actually very much makes a lot of sense all around. But again, we have to have legislators who have the will to push this through. And so, so far, we haven't had that under any administration, Republican or Democrat. Why, what do you, why, why not? Like, what's, what's the, it, it, in their mind, what's the fear of doing that? It's just that they would lose their support. Like people wouldn't want that. The populace wouldn't want that. Or I think that's part of it. And I think the loudest voices who contact Congress are anti-immigrant. And this is why I always tell people it's important to call. It's important to write emails to your legislators, letting them know, hey, I support this. I support the DREAM Act. It doesn't even have to be long. You know, if you call your uh, legislators, somebody answers the phone. A staff person answers the phone. You don't get a voicemail. Really? Because, yeah, if you call, you will get a person on the phone. Generally, they will ask you your address to make sure you're a constituent. And then you can tell them. Hi, my name is Preston Sprinkle, and I want you to know that I really want my legislator to support the DREAM Act, the Afghan Adjustment Act. I want America to continue to be a country that welcomes immigrants and refugees and provides you know, a safe haven for them. That's it. You don't have to have a script. or There are scripts out there that you can Google, but that's all you need to say. And they write it down, and you can say, I want a response from my congressperson, you know, whether it's your senator, your representative, whoever, and they will respond. So really, that that just seems to, and that, that one phone call will do something, a little nudge the person a little bit. So if you had a hundred people call this week, um, that's going to, that would, I mean, put a lot of pressure. Yeah. It matters. Yeah. One time at work, uh, cause I used to work for an organization that served, um, refugees and other immigrants. And one time we called, we all during lunch, 10, 15 minutes to call, you know, and we all called our, uh, our legislators and wanted them to know, you know, people in Baltimore, some people live in Pennsylvania, some people live in Maryland. So yeah. And it was a really, it's a really easy thing to do. It just has to be during business hours, right? Sure. You can email anytime, but if you're going to call, it has to be during business hours. And so, and that really matters. The fact that Trump uh, was able to really generate so much anti-immigrant sentiment tells you that leadership really matters too. And so the things that our leaders are saying really affect people, uh, people who are on the margins of society. And so it really um, did affect the country and it affected churches as well. People in churches are constituents, right? Hello, friends. Today, I want to tell you about our recent guest, Doug Smith, and his newest book, Unintentional, How Screens Secretly Shape Your Desires and How You Can Break Free. Look, I'm all about thinking deeply and loving widely, but many of us can't actually think deeply because we're addicted to screens. And that's why Doug Smith wrote Unintentional. It's the tech-focused discipleship book I've been looking for. With biblical wisdom from Greg Boyd, Oz Guinness, and others, Doug helps you and your family overcome screen obsession. So check out the notes uh, where you can find a link to purchase Doug's book, Unintentional. 
What do you say to people that the argument that if we relax or, or ex- maybe not relax, but expand our immigration policies to allow more people in, make it easier for people to get in, get a work visa, that we're going to open up the floodgates to criminals and gang activity and drug smuggling? Like, and you know, you'll if, if you turn on you know more conservative news outlets, they'll they'll highlight cases, right, where this person got raped and it was an undocumented immigrant, or whatever. So obviously that can and does happen but is that is there any legitimacy to that being kind of a widespread thing or so here's here's something really interesting when italians were migrating to the u.s over 100 years ago um it was said that they were prone to criminality and that they were intellectually inferior so they started doing research about connection between crime and immigration and there is none immigrants are five times less likely to be in prison or to commit crimes because again, they come here to work Mm. and it's not because we're better people. It's because we know we'll suffer more Mm. or the same thing that a native citizen could do and get a slap on the wrist and immigrant get deported. For example, a DACA recipient, if they associate with people who are, they don't have to be committing a crime. They associate with people who are criminals could lose their status and get deported. So because of because of this, immigrants don't do these things because mm. we know we'll, we'll suffer more for the same actions. They've done this research over and over again for 100 years. Oh, wow. And there is no connection between that. So you have a situation, for example, like what you just mentioned. There was a case in Iowa during uh, the time that President Trump was in office where there was an undocumented immigrant who was accused of you know, raping and murdering a young woman. And of course, a lot was made of this as like this immigrant. See, immigration causes this. The thing is, immigration does not cause violence against women. Patriarchy does that. The fact that some men feel entitled to women's bodies, that's what causes violence against women. The culprit there wasn't immigration. It was a man mm, that's <laughs> who committed point. this crime. Yeah. Does that make sense? And so I think sometimes, too, we hear this. And we put the fault on the wrong thing. And there are lots of immigrants here that are working that are not committing crimes like that. So to use this example to represent all immigrants is really faulty reasoning. So, yeah, there's a lot of research done about that. You can read about it um, as well. And there is no, no connection between immigration and crime. The more immigration there is, the more crime drops, actually. People don't always understand this because they see a lot of immigrants, for example, that are newly arrived living in under-resourced neighborhoods. That's because that's what they can afford. It's not because they're prone to criminality. And the other thing is that, um, yeah, immigrants, because they're coming here to work, that's what they're doing. They're actually, we have a visa (laughs) called a U-Visa. The actual truth is, Immigrants are more likely to be victims of crimes. And that's the actual truth. And in fact, the U.S. government knows that. So they've developed something called a U-Visa. This is a visa given to an immigrant person who is a victim of a serious crime. If they report it to the police and cooperate with the district attorney, they will receive this visa that has a pathway to citizenship. So... There is a waiting list for this visa because there are so many immigrants who are victims of crimes. So that's the reality. Immigrants are more likely to be 
victims of crimes. And that's because they don't know the language, the culture. Also, people target them because they know they carry cash. They know they come here to work. Um, They're also targets of things like wage theft, of working without paid time off, without any sick days. So that's the reality. And in terms of drugs, because I get asked this a lot about drug trafficking. Okay, yeah. Drugs, yeah, drugs, drugs are coming in through ports of entry. So they're not coming in through the desert. You know, you see these movies where they built a tunnel in the middle of the desert. <laughs> it's not how drugs are coming in. That's a great like narco season on Netflix. But most drugs, um, the majority are coming in through ports of entry. So when you hear that drugs were seized and they found all these drugs, it's at a port of entry. At a shipping port in Miami, at a driving, you know, through in California or Texas. That's how drugs are coming in. The number of drugs that come into the U.S. are just too massive to, you know, put a kilo or two on every undocumented immigrant. It's just not, it's not even realistic in terms of how drugs are coming in. They're being trafficked in, in cargo ships. And sometimes you you hear about this, right, in coffee cans or something like that. That's how they're coming in. So drugs coming in the country and immigration policies are two different conversations. Like, it's it's almost they're unrelated. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that makes sense. Um, we Karen, we haven't even I haven't. <laughs> I was about to ask you about your book forty minutes ago, and then it, we got sidetracked. So talk to us about your new book, Beyond Welcome, because you have another. Your your previous book was on immigration too. What's the difference between these two? And then tell us walk walk us through this this new one. I would say my first book, The God Who Sees, was more like a one on one conversation for people who are really new to learning that the Bible speaks to immigration and what the Bible has to say about it. And this book is really part two. These are people who are already welcome and care about immigration, but that's now the next part of the conversation. How do we move beyond welcome into things like solidarity and kinship and advocacy together? And so usually immigrants are kind of kept as uh, kind of the objects, even if you think about a slogan like we welcome refugees, right? Mm-hmm. We is the subject. Yeah. Refugees are the object. There's a power dynamic so, there. Yeah. Right. It's a power dynamic at play there. And so what I'm doc- talking about in this book is how do we keep immigrants at the center? So how do we have a mutual hospitality, for example? And I use Jesus as the example of Jesus was poor. We know that uh, a lot of people supported his ministry right? The three years that he did ministry. And we know he himself said he didn't have a place to lay his head. But what he offered to people was he fully listened to them, engaged them, was present to them. And when the night before he died, he told his disciples, you know, I'm leaving, but I go to prepare a place for you in my father's house. So this person who had been a receiver of hospitality was now going to become the host. And he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I will receive you when you come. And so often what we do for immigrants is that we make decisions for them. We assume what they need and how we're going to meet that need. Instead of really listening and engaging, instead of asking them for feedback on services that they receive, And so what I'm proposing is let's keep immigrants at the center of the conversation. And so what kind of words do we use? Are the words that we're using 
dividing us, keeping our neighbors far from us? How do we think about land as Christians? Do we think of it as this is my land (laughs) and I have a right to keep people out? Or do we think of it as, no, this is God's creation. This is God's land was given to us. How is it that um, we think about like myths, like what makes a good immigrant, bad immigrant? Because that's a myth, right? Of a good kind of immigrant and a bad kind. And is that really a gospel oriented question for those of us who receive grace? Yeah. Just as we are. And then there's also myths like pressuring immigrants to assimilate, mm-hmm. which is really harmful and ultimately is a huge loss. So how do we uh, instead focus on integration and encourage people to keep their language or culture, all of that? So, and frankly, immigration is really normal these days. We still think of it as something that's really unusual. But if all the people who are displaced in the world today were to gather in one place, it would make up the fifth largest country in the world. That's how many people are on the move in the world right now. Think of it, even within the U.S., people move all the time, right? And they move for the same reasons that immigrants move, to be closer to family, for work, right, to find a job. And in recent history, we've seen people move because of things like Hurricane Katrina, right? Mm -hmm. Displaced a lot of people to Texas. The fires out West caused a lot of people to move to other places. So people move within the U.S. for the same reasons people always move. Yeah. And so how do we create a conversation about the fact that it's normal and the fact that, you know, Paul exhorts us that the only citizenship that matters is citizenship in heaven. And for someone who was a Roman citizen to say that is a really big deal. Right, right, right. I, the the assimilation integration piece I, I I think is so important that, that even well intended Christians I think miss and I and I do, I hear again I think we're we're being discipled by political commentary more than the Bible like because um, I'll even hear Christians say who who maybe are pro immigrant like yeah welcome the immigrant you know as long as they you know become American and, and value our culture and all this stuff. It's like, well, where, where is that in the Bible? Like, I don't, you know, the Bible celebrates other cultures. And then, you know, when we go overseas, we love, oh, we love to go to France or Germany and that culture, whatever, but then don't bring that heat. You know, if you come here, <laughs> don't be bringing your culture with us or keep that off to the side rather than integrating and celebrating different ethnic and cultural values. Um, I, that, I think that's a huge change in thinking. I'm curious, Karen, if you can help me out with this. So I mentioned in in passing earlier that we have churches here in town that host other um, immigrant churches. Like, so like my, my, well, so my church, we have a two English services, then we have a separate Spanish service, which is pretty much a whole different congregation. We have an Arabic service, and then we have, I think, one Swahili service, I think, a Congolese service. Maybe it's in French. Um, how these are all completely separate. What if you, if we said, Hey, are we, is this the best we can do? Or is there something more we can do to, um, integrate? Um, what would you say to that? What would be your counsel to churches that do have these kind of separate services? Is that, should they be kept separate? Is that, is that like, Oh no, this is just leave it the way it is. Um, or is there some kind of in integration, more integration that would be more celebratory of the gospel, for lack of better terms? And, and how, how do we accomplish that? Yes. 
So I think that's a great question. And I don't know if you remember, because, you know, you and I were both at Fuller. And I remember taking a class at Fuller. I wasn't Fuller. at Fuller. I was down the street. at, Ma- at I was at Master's Seminary. Oh, you were at Master's. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Sister schools. Basically sister schools. So, you know, in seminary, right, they offer preaching classes. So I, um, I took class on preaching, homiletics. They offered a class at Fuller that I thought was interesting. It was called Preaching in the Black Tradition. So I asked my professor, well, who's preaching are we learning in this class then? That class is preaching in the black tradition. Whose tradition is this? Oh, this is just regular homiletics, regular preaching. Regular. I'm like, no, <laughs> somebody's preaching. <laughs> so here, here, that's the sticking point, I think. When people tell me, well, I just think it's better, you know, it, it reflects God's kingdom if we're all together, you know, in the same in the same uh, church service. I'm like, okay, but whose culture is going to be centered there? Are we going to expect the immigrant community to worship exactly like the white dominant community? Or are we really going to have a blending right. of, of services? I have a good friend who, um, you know, speaks Spanish and English equally well. And she, whenever she preaches, whether <laughs> it's a, a Latin community or not, she will preach bilingually. Spanish and English, you know, really bothers people. They're like, oh, it breaks my train of thought. It does this and does that. She's like, well, I want you to imagine sitting there and not understanding anything because it's not in your language, right? So I think if communities want to do that, I think they can have a conversation. But often what people do is they expect the immigrant community to just adapt, assimilate into the white community instead of really having a full bicultural service. So if you're going to do that and you're going to do that work, which is hard work, I think that's great. But if not, I think it's okay. You don't have the capacity to do that or the will to do that, I suppose, because sometimes it's a whole congregation, right? It's okay. Allow immigrant churches to use because, you know, God shows up in different cultures in different ways mm-hmm. and people can express that fully. So I grew up in a Catholic immigrant church. And you know what? My parents, you know, my dad did custodial work, even though he was a college-educated person in Guatemala. My mom was like a home health care worker, even though she'd been a nurse in Guatemala. Mm. Wow. But when they went to church, you know what? All of a sudden, they weren't an invisible service worker. All of a sudden, they were Señora y Señor y Don Jorge and Doña Mayra. You know, they were dignified in a way that they didn't receive that in the culture. And it was a safe community. They could speak Spanish. They could be themselves. And this is a real haven for many immigrant people, you mm-hmm. know, when they go to a, a, a church service from their community. Honestly, my parents were not even very serious Christians. That community was really important to them as a cultural, comfortable, you know, touch point. I think if you are allowing churches to use your space, that is a wonderful and really good thing. And not all churches do it, you know? And right. so I think I think that is a, a wonderful thing to do. If you are open to relationships and conversations with pastors of these communities, I think that's great. And I think jumping to integrating the two is a more difficult conversation just because then you have to really be intentional about making sure you're not pressuring them to just become like right, you. Right, right, right. So the leadership, the it would have to be a true blend, not a top-down where 
the white or just not the white, but just the dominant American church is kind of running the show. One of the challenges I see, and I don't know what to do with this because it sounds good on paper and I'm like, oh, it'd be so good. Let's just blend it all together. And I, I'm, I would be all for like one week you have it. English translated into Spanish. Next week, you have it Spanish translated into English, and the people that don't like that can go somewhere else. I mean, you know, like we're okay with other people having, you know, the translation, but when it comes to us, oh no, you know, it's hard for us, whatever. So I, I don't. Um, worship can be multilingual. Preaching, I would have different preachers from different, whatever. But um, the hard one for me is that I can think right now of several churches in town that are immigrant churches, and they're very conservative very conservative, like, you know, women head coverings and preacher suit and tie. They're, they're typically the ones I'm thinking of at least are very patriarchal, very male dominated and theologically extremely conservative. And so part of me is like, Oh, I don't, I'm not down with that. But then is that, is that a hidden species of ethnocentrism that my more not even progressive values, but relatively speaking, progressive theology, which some people would laugh. At, you know, what do you what do you say about that? I mean, that's um... yeah. I mean, it's really true. It's why I don't go to an immigrant church. <laughs> there are very few. There is one in my city that's very progressive. Um, it's an Episcopal Spanish speaking church. But yes, I agree. It is. They are very conservative, and so that would be hard if you had a more progressive congregation and you were trying to. Um, sort of do a bicultural service with a really conservative, where, for example, if you had women preachers in the English service, but they weren't allowed in the Spanish-speaking service, that would be a, a huge issue, right? A huge theological uh, conflict there. And so, yeah, it is true. A lot of churches are very conservative, which is really, you know, Interesting, right? When you think about the way that people in the church think about immigrant communities as like lawbreakers or something, and these churches are so conservative yeah. and so aligned with uh, just values that are just seen from another time, right? Yeah, um, yeah. The head coverings, like you mentioned, the you know, not allowing women leaders, all of that. Um, so, I think that also makes it very complicated. Just because you're allowing an immigrant community to worship in your space doesn't mean that they align with you right. on everything theologically. And so that could make it really, really challenging. There are churches that are doing that. There's a Nazarene church, but again, they're all Nazarenes. So they're on that same page. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There's Pasadena Nazarene in um, California that does that really well. And they do, they, they'll have the bilingual. Is that the service. Pasadena Paznas or whatever it's called? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I, yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. I've been there before. Yeah. It, it, it seemed very, yeah. Forward thinking yeah. in this area. Um, I think it's more like second generation churches that would be more, more in line with that. So in California, for example, I, I visited some Asian American churches that are second generation. They're not okay. no longer first generation. So they're in English. They are more progressive. I think that is more of a possibility because you have a lot more you have a common language, at least, you know, and both groups understand the, the culture of the U.S. really well. I think it's okay to have let people have an immigrant service because, again, there are things that they will lose with integration. Right. This is a good space for them. And, again, it's more than just the worship time. It's being able to be fully yourself. Right, right, right. And yeah, that's something totally. that you can't do in the, in the dominant, when dominant culture people present, I think that is a real gift to communities is to allow them to use space. 
And I think you can have those conversations at a later time. Once you build relationship, you build trust. Mm-hmm. And it's also good to find out where they're where they're coming from. You know, I think it's important for pastors to have accountability, kind of like having a denomination for that reason, or at least having a network of churches, you know, that have things they like vineyard churches were like that, Calvary chapels, right? I think Acts 29 has that too, where they have agreement, right, on basic tenets that the churches have to agree to that they're part of. I think it's good to have, like, I think what works at Paznaz is that they they all agree they're Nazarenes, you know, uh, and so that they have some theological overlap, even though the expression of it might be very different. So there are ways to do that, but I think it is it is a much more complex conversation if you're not just asking them mm-hmm. to assimilate to your space. Like, come into our space. We welcome you. But you have to be just like us when you're here. Right. You right. Know? But my pastor, um, he went with, with uh, our Congolese, the pastor of the Congolese, Congolese congregation to uh, Congo in, in Kinshasa. And um, the, the pastor was like, hey, can you make sure you bring some, like, nice clothes, you know? Um because my, you know, I, I go to it's actually a very conservative theological, theologically conservative church, but culturally it's it's very relaxed. It's Cal, it's a Calvary Chapel, so it's like, you know, fundamentalists and Hawaiian shirts and you know Birkenstocks or whatever. So, so my pastor, I don't even think he owns like a, <laughs> a suit, a tie. <laughs> suit. Yeah. And so he thought like dressing up was like a button down shirt and like nice jeans. And so he got over there, and the pastor's like, "All right, let's get you know, you're gonna speak at this church, throw your suit on." He's like, "I didn't bring a suit." He's like. <laughs> wait, no, you have to, you have, you can't not, you can't preach in that. Like you can't, it's just not, you can't do that. Like it's, that's, that's not what we do here. So, um, even, even something as small as that, like a mixed congregation where the preachers, you know, wearing a t-shirt and jeans that can just be very offensive or just that's a huge stomach block for some people, you know? Oh yeah. I remember going to church with my grandma. It was really getting fully dressed up. Yeah. Every yeah. Sunday, that's, yeah, that's part of the culture is that you're really dressed up and putting your best side forward. And yeah, it's true. Um, it, even that is just a difference. There's no sort of casual coming to church in flip-flops or anything like that. It's yeah. not okay. Yeah. So yeah, those are big, big differences. I, um, as part of my degree at Fuller, I had to do spend time in a church that was not from my culture. And I ended up going to an Asian American church um, out in Pasadena for a while. And there were so many things that I learned that were so interesting. Like, for example, after after the service, there was always the feast where we would gather together, you know, as a church, you know, and we'd all eat together. And it was really, really wonderful. But there are things that I think about that church when I think back, I'm like, oh, there are things about this church that if you didn't really understand, Asian culture would feel wrong to you. Yeah. You might feel them that way, even though they're just differences in the way that people worship, in the way that people express yeah. um, their prayers. Um, so, yeah, and I, don't get me wrong. I think there's a richness if we can all come together, people from all different, you know, that sort of revelation <laughs> um, picture of everyone coming together and worshiping God. But as long as we don't, we're not forcing people to worship our way. And we really are allowing that freedom of, okay, we're really going to have difficult conversations about how we're going to do this. Cause usually what I see is that churches will do a, Oh yeah, you know, we welcome everyone. And they'll have one song they sing in Spanish during the, 
And that's the, that's the extent, you know, and I'm like, no, this is really, really different. Also, a lot of immigrant churches, the services tend to be long. Right. (laughs) And think about it. I mean, for them, it's really important to have this long service. It's the only time, right, to get to be with all these people. And usually there's meals that are connected to it. And so all of that, I think, is part of a lot of white people might come and think, oh, my gosh, this is so long. What is it going to be over? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) I would be that white. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, totally. I went to a a church here in Baltimore that was in Spanish. And I remember like four hours in thinking, I'd really like to go home now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so tired. It seems nowhere near ending. (laughs) Yeah. I preached at a... um... It was actually at a YWAM base in Mexico, and so it was in it was very bilingual, and uh, I think it was an hour and a half of pretty aggressive worship before I even got on stage to speak. I was exhausted. <laughs> I was like, I, I want to go take a nap, and I'm like, now just starting to um, speak, you yeah. know, and like, yeah, you can speak for an hour. I'm like, I, I get sick of hearing myself after a half. Karen, I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much for the conversation. Uh, Again, the book is Beyond Welcome, Centering Immigrants in Our Christian Response Immigration. Uh, Thank you for the work you're doing. I always love talking to you. Learn a ton. So, um, and let's, let's go Dodgers next year. Let's, let's hope that they pick up. Let's go Dodgers. This show is part of the Converge Podcast Network.